We're looking at Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 this morning, and we have been in Joshua for the last month, and uh, next week we are going to be taking a break from Joshua in order to prepare for Easter, and we're going to be doing that by finishing up our series on the book of John as we enter into the crucifixion of Jesus, which we'll be getting to next week. We find ourselves in Joshua chapter 5, and here in this passage, we have, we're in this interim period between the spies leaving Rahab's house and the conquest of Jericho. And they have crossed the River Jordan. They are now dwelling 14 miles away from Jericho, all 2.5 million people in the nation of Israel who would have crossed over at that time. And we come to our passage here. In this passage, as we look at it, this passage um, is a picture of baptism and a picture of the Lord's Supper in their Old Testament form. And it is a passage that has all of the challenges and all of the complications of baptism and the Lord's Supper do today, are present here in this passage. So what we're going to do here is I'm going to go through this passage uh, verse by verse first to make some comments on it, and then we're going to dive into to seek to answer a couple key questions about sacraments, the Lord's Supper, and baptism here this morning. Also, as we dive into this here, I just want to let you know that I'm going to be following substantially the argument of a guy by the name of Ray Ortland, who's been very precise and helpful in articulating some of these challenges. Join with me in prayer. Father, this is your word, and you're giving us your word that we would understand it. And we come to a passage of Scripture that represents conflicts, disagreements, confusion in your church for ages. And the reason why there's conflicts, disagreements, confusion in your church for ages is because there are things that are not especially clear and sometimes seem contradictory. So, Father, we pray that this morning that you would give us uh, ears to hear, that you would give us minds to focus on your word, and, Lord, that you would also give us discernment to understand your word and also to follow it where it may. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. It was indeed on June 6, 1944, that the Allied forces made their offense on D-Day and landed on the beaches of Normandy to fight against the Axis powers. On that day when they landed on the beach on June 6, 1944, there was the 1st Division of American soldiers, as well as the 4th Division, the Airborne Divisions, the 50th Division from the UK, the Canadian Division, and another UK Division. On the first day of the conquest on June 6th, they did not achieve their objectives and only made it partially onto the beach and what they had hoped to accomplish the first day. Then on June 7th, 1944, the most bizarre thing happened, which was to the shock of the UK forces and to the Canadian forces, the Americans set up giant tables on the beaches and celebrated Thanksgiving dinner. Now, of course, you know from your history that that didn't happen. But when we come to this passage of Scripture here this morning in Joshua chapter 5, there's something even more bizarre that happens. And so let's walk through these verses in Joshua chapter 5 to understand what is happening here. If you recall, the nation of Israel has been wandering through the desert. They have conquered now at this point the two tribes east of the Jordan River, They have crossed the Jordan River, and they are in the promised land being surrounded by their enemies. 
Before them, a mere 14 miles away, barely a half day's walk, is the citadel of Jericho and the fortress of Jericho. Let's walk through this passage to understand what is going on. Verse 1 of chapter 12. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites were by the sea, and they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Let's pause there. First thing to notice about Joshua chapter 5 verse 1 is that this verse actually began along in Joshua chapter 4. Uh, the Bible verses were added way after um, the time of the writing of Scripture, and sometimes they didn't get it right. This is one example. This verse is the conclusion to Joshua chapter 4. So Joshua chapter 5 actually begins, or in my opinion, should begin in Joshua in verse 2. And this is what happens. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Now, the reason why he said that they needed to do it a second time is because many of them had been circumcised when they came out of Israel, and those who were under fighting age were still alive, so they'd been circumcised. And so now the nation was to be circumcised, particularly those who had not been circumcised, and that would be, in particular, the children of the older generation. So Joshua made flint knives, and he circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah's Haraloth. Now, if you are reading this in your Bible, you will see a footnote there that Gibeah's Haraloth means hill of foreskins. All right? And Scripture want us, doesn't want us to lose exactly what's happening here in this passage. It's not surprising that by the end of this paragraph, the city's name has been changed. All right? Now, as we go into this, the story of Scripture makes clear that as Joshua is circumcising the nation of Israel here, is that the New Testament subsequently makes very clear that baptism is the new circumcision of the people of God after the resurrection of Jesus. Okay? And as we go through this passage, I'm going to need you to think with me about some of these challenges and conflicts that have been present throughout the centuries. I would also encourage you to listen to this afresh. I will deliberately not be using the structure and typical language surrounding the discussion and debates of these past about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Also, uh, just as a heads up, I'm also not going to be mentioning our practice of infant baptism here at Cornerstone, so if you have concerns about that, you can relax as we enter into this passage. But Scripture makes clear that the New Testament... Um, that the sign of the people of God after the resurrection of Jesus Christ is baptism, and that replaces circumcision, that a bloody act is replaced by an act of washing with water. Where this is made clear is in, first off, is in Romans chapter 4, where Paul says this. He says, and we say that by, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. He received the sign of circumcision, something that was visible, as a seal, that would be a guarantee, a signet ring, as a seal, you could say a notary, of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So Paul is indicating that circumcision, it was a sign and seal of God's 
promises of the righteousness that comes by faith. Subsequently, in Colossians chapter 2, and mind you, what I'm saying here is that everyone who is a professing Bible-believing Christian affirms what I'm about to say, is that Colossians chapter 2 equates circumcision with baptism. It says, in him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The main clause with all of these prepositional phrases for you grammar experts here, the main clause is this. You were circumcised, how? Having been buried with him in baptism. And so baptism becomes the New Testament post-resurrection form of the sign and seal of the covenant of circumcision, and that is universally agreed upon across Christian denominations. We jump back into our passage. But circumcision wasn't being practiced. It tells us this. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them all. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt and all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who had come out of it had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised, which was an act of disobedience and an act of unbelief. Why were they not circumcised? It's because the generation that had gone to come out of the Exodus, they had forfeited the covenant of God by unbelief and disobedience. But God is faithful to his promises. Continues. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished. Why? Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 7, so it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way couple things to note before we go further. Notice that the scripture says it was their children who God raised up in the place of the unbelieving generation of their parents. Here is a very practical implication for anyone who is a child, whether you are young or whether you are older. The implication is this, is one, you cannot claim your parents' faith and ride that for a relationship with God. Number two, is you cannot blame your parents' lack of faith for the issues in your life. Is that it was the children who the Lord raised up to be faithful because the parents were not faithful. So if you are a child or were raised as a child in an unfaithful home, the calling for you is to put your faith in the Lord and to put your trust and to be bold and courageous to enter into God's promises. It's the first thing to note here in verse 7. The second thing to note as we go through this passage is what is is stated repeatedly. Is that this command to circumcise was given to Joshua. And what is stated repeatedly is that Joshua circumcised them. In verse 2, 
it says, the Lord said to Joshua. In verse 4, it says, Joshua circumcised them. In verse 7, it says, Joshua is the one who circumcised them. Now, whether exactly Joshua did it himself or the Levites did it that he commanded to do this, the point is is that the command was given to Joshua as the authorized leader of the people of God. Here is why this is significant. Is that there are other places where God commands Joshua to give commands to families and individuals. We saw this in Joshua chapter 3 where God said, Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. It was a command given to Joshua to be completed by the people under the people. When offerings were given, it was a command that the, pam- the families were to bring offerings to do this. That the families were to do this. But in the, with circumcision here, is that circumcision was a command given to Joshua to be carried out by Joshua. Is that Joshua was the one who was authorized to do this as a command given to the people of God. The command was not given to Joshua to command their fathers to do this. The command was not given to Joshua to say, everybody, go circumcise yourselves. Nor was the command given to families saying, wives, have at it at this point. The point is, is that the command was given to Joshua. Why? Because circumcision was not a private act. The sign of the covenant was not a family act. It was not performed by the initiative of the individual believer. It was not performed at the hand of the individual believer. The sign and seal of circumcision was commanded by God to Joshua to carry out as the leader of God's people. Similarly, baptism is not a private act. Baptism is not a family act. Baptism is not to be performed by the initiative of the individual believer or by the hand of the individual believer is that the sign and seal of baptism is commanded by God, given to the church, to be carried out in the church by those whom he has appointed as leaders of the church. And the pattern continues from Joshua through Scripture through the New Testament. We continue on in verse 8. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed says that the whole nation, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished. This word here, whole or all, is used six times in this passage, emphasizing that the whole unbelieving generation, the parents, had been eradicated in the desert, and that the whole next generation was circumcised in their entirety. The comprehensive scope of this is emphasized in verse 8, And verse 6, by a wordplay here in Hebrew, where it says, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, of the next generation, it's the exact same word that used to describe of the entire nation perishing in the wilderness. This wordplay is being emphasized here. Ray Ortland comments, as we will learn throughout the Bible, God will be true to his promise. His people will inherit the promised land. But that never meant that each and every person who seemed at one time or another to belong to his people would so inherit. 
those without faith forfeit the promise. Indeed, a whole generation might be lost with very few exceptions, but God will raise up another to take their place in the covenant. So it continues, verse 9. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. The word here, the reproach of Egypt, what is that? It means one of two things. It's either the jokes that the Egyptians made about the Israelites, yeah, their God rescued them just so that they could go wander around the desert, or the reproach of Egypt is the unbelieving generation of parents. That how on earth could the unbelieving generation be unbelieving when God, it was them that God dramatically rescued, them that God sent the plagues to deliberate, them that God delivered through the Red Sea. It was they that God brought to Mount Sinai. How on earth could they be characterized by unbelief and disobedience? It's the reproach of Egypt. And the word here, Gilgal, me, sounds like the word roll. And so the city's name is changed from its immediate predecessor. Verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening of the plains of Jericho. This occurred on the 14th day, exactly 40 years earlier, the people of God celebrated the first Passover. The Passover where a lamb was to be slain, the blood put over their door, doorposts, and anyone that the blood was put over their doorposts, God's judgment would pass by and they would be liberated. Here, then, I'm sorry, the first Passover preceded the Exodus. Here, they are recreating a second Exodus, and the Passover immediately follows the crossing of the Jordan River. The indication from Scripture, though, is that Passover has not been celebrated for 38 years. And as we will see in a little bit, Passover is the precursor to the Lord's Supper. Verse 12, or 11. And the day after Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel. But they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Why? Because in the manas, in the wilderness, the wilderness could not provide food for them. So God gave them manna. Now the land is providing food and they are able to cultivate it and make it fruitful. And the pattern was is that when people are unable to provide for themselves, God gives them food. And when they are able to provide for themselves through work, he requires of them work in that, for them. All right, that was the longest reading of 12 verses I have ever done in my life. Okay? Now, as we begin to enter into this here, in the Old Testament form, we have these two sacraments of the Christian church. Old Testament form of circumcision and Passover, and the New Testament forms of the Lord's Supper and baptism. And as I mentioned, all the challenges present today were also present here in this passage. Let me give a definition to start off. When we talk about the sacraments, there are two sacraments, not seven. There are two. And what a sacrament is, is a sacrament is a command of the Lord whereby sensible signs, meaning a sign that you can touch, see, smell, taste, that your senses get affected by, whereby a visible, sensible sign, the benefits of God's covenant and his promises, sensible signs, whereby the benefits of God's covenant promises are represented, they are sealed, like a guarantee, a notary stamp, and applied to believers. And anyone who has been a Christian for half a moment knows 
that there have been perpetual problems around this. One of the greatest causes of division in the church is how the sacraments function. In fact, in 1517, the Reformation, you could argue, was largely a battle over the sacraments, over their purpose, their meaning, their efficacy of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it wasn't just between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics, because just 12 years later, after the beginning of the Reformation, In 1529, the Lutherans and the Reformed section split, never to be joined again over a disagreement over the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And then, to complicate things further, the Anabaptists came along and they denied that baptism should be applied to children. And then, to complicate things even further than that, some Anabaptists, not all of them, some Anabaptists insisted that only total immersion was valid. And the debates still continue. And the debates still continue to varying degrees within our own denomination. What does baptism do? What does it not do? Who is it to be administered to? Who is it to be administered by? How often should the Lord's Supper be practiced? How should it be practiced? Should children participate? Do you use leavened bread or unleavened bread? Do you use wine or juice? And unfortunately, every decision made in faith is judged harshly by others. And we know how to argue about these things, whether we do so knowledgeably and intelligibly or not. We know how to argue about them. And for some, some people just kind of cop out and say, well, as to the arguments, you know, people have been arguing about these for centuries. I'm not going to figure this out, so it's all going to be fine. At best, that's lazy. At worst, it's outright disobedient. So as we dive into this, good thing to know is that I'm going to resolve all of the debates of the last several centuries here for you this morning, and this is why you come to Cornerstone. All right. But as we begin to enter into this, there's a couple of key questions that we're going to look at here, and as I mentioned, I really need you to think with me through this. All right. The first question is, there's a lot of debate about this, a lot of division, but does any of it matter? Are the sacraments necessary or are they non-necessary? And what is particularly challenging about this is that the Word of God seems to make contradictory statements. Is that on the one hand, Scripture warns us to not think that circumcision or Passover or baptism or the Lord's Supper saves you or changes you or guarantees your salvation. In fact, the prophets regularly said this. For example, Jeremiah chapter 4, Jeremiah railed against the people of God and said, "'Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts.'" Jeremiah says, circumcision is not something external, it's something internal. What you did externally doesn't matter. What matters is what's happening internally. And Paul makes the same point in Romans chapter 2. For one is not a Jew outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by, not by the letter. And then when we come to our passage that we're looking at here this morning... What we see is that the generation that left Egypt, the generation that dies in the wilderness, they not only had circumcision and Passover, but they also had baptism. Because 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that having celebrated Passover, being the ones for whom God initiated Passover, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that they were baptized by walking through the Red Sea, even though they didn't get wet when they walked through the Red Sea. They were baptized by walking through the Red Sea, and they had all of those who participated in Passover were circumcised. And it is this generation of those who were circumcised, of those who were Passover, those who were baptized in the Red Sea, 
that rebelled against God. And it was this generation that died in the wilderness and did not enter the promises of God because they lacked true faith in God. Furthermore, the next generation, the generation born in the wilderness, did not have circumcision and they did not have Passover. Yet, despite not having circumcision and not having Passover, they defeated two Amorite kings, took their land, crossed the Jordan River on dry ground, and they consecrated themselves unto the Lord. By all indications, they were a faithful and obedient people, careful to do what the Lord commanded, and they did not have the sacraments of circumcision and Passover. So, you have a baptized, circumcised Passover people who die unsaved in the wilderness, and you have an uncircumcised, unpassovered people who walk into the promised land. As Ortland says, what could more powerfully illustrate the unimportance of these sacraments than that? Furthermore, there is the thief on the cross who, dying on the cross, Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise, and he obviously was not baptized, certainly indicating that this is unnecessary. However, not so fast. And in fact, for many people, if you come from a non-denominational background, their approach largely to the sacraments is this. Well, these things, you know, these things have caused division. And so, you know, we're, you know, what's really important is faith in Jesus Christ. And the error of the, of within non-denominational churches that they're saying is that they are unnecessary. Why fight over something that is unnecessary? Why state a position on something that is unnecessary? but not so fast. Because here's what happens, is that the people of God cross the Jordan River, and they cross into the promised land. The Canaanites are cowering in fear. The Israelite army is ready for battle. They are poised to secure the promised land. They have crossed. They are in fear. The other side is in fear. Now is the time to strike. You never give your enemies a chance to regroup and to recover morale. And as the nation marches into battle, they stop. And not only do they stop, but Joshua incapacitates his fighting force by circumcising them all. Now, circumcision on a newborn baby is not that big of a deal, but on a full-grown male, it's a minor operation, let alone the fact that they were being done with homemade flint knives as it was occurring. You have to wonder the conversation in the midst of the army. Right? We're going to be circumcised right now? I mean, who was the dumb officer who thought this one up? How can anyone think this is a good idea? And we know that it incapacitates them because there's a story in Genesis where the daughter of Jacob is raped, is raped, and Simon and Levi want to avenge the rape of their sister. And so the people that raped their sister say, we want to marry her. And Simeon and Levi say, well, you can marry her, but all of you guys have to be circumcised. And they said, she's worth it. So they all get circumcised. Three days after their circumcision, Simeon and Levi go through and they slaughter all of the males. Three days afterwards. And here, in the face of the enemy, Joshua incapacitates at God's command his fighting force And verse 8 tells us is that they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then, after they were healed, they have a feast. They have their version of Thanksgiving, but it's a whole lot more significant. They celebrate Passover. Now, I went to seminary. I am not a graduate 
of one of our distinguished war colleges. But it seems to me that to incapacitate your entire fighting force for days in the hot zone of a war and then to insist on them to participate in a feast which takes a day to prepare and then a day to participate in would be utterly foolish. It is utterly foolish unless it were absolutely necessary. It would be foolish unless it were absolutely necessary. So Ortland comments, what, could, what better proof could there be that the sacraments are vitally necessary to the life of God's people than that Yahweh insisted on them at such a time as that? I know that you've got a busy schedule and that you have many demands and pressures, and what happens in here is not particularly extraordinary, but what happens in here is absolutely necessary. In fact, nothing more important to your weekly schedule. So what is obvious, as we are continuing to work through this, what is obvious from this passage is that the people of God were not ready to enter the promised land because Israel, the people of God, were not thoroughly and completely identified with the Lord and his covenant. Why? Because the mark, the sign, and the seal of the covenant was not upon them. We might think that the battles east of the Jordan, they're crossing the Jordan River, are far more significant and far more amazing than the sacraments, but apparently the Lord does not think so. Now, there's this debate that has gone on through the ages around this exact question. The debate throughout the ages is this. Is one baptized because they are a Christian, or is one baptized to become a Christian? And Scripture's answer is yes. Scripture's answer is yes. And the Reformed Church has never taught that baptism was necessary for salvation. They have never taught that the unbaptized are not saved simply because of baptism. At the same time, we never consider whether a Christian would actually remain unbaptized. In the Old Testament, you are not considered a member of the people of God. You are not considered a member of the covenant community unless... The males had been circumcised. This was true for children. The children were not considered to be a member of the covenant community unless they were circumcised. This was true of foreigners who wanted to convert to Judaism, is that they had to be circumcised. In the New Testament text, there are multiple of them that indicate that salvation and baptism go together, Acts chapter 2. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. He is citing the Old Testament promises. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 equates that when you are baptized, it is through baptism that you are united to Christ. It is through baptism that you are united to his death. And through baptism, you are united to his resurrection. And then even more so, Peter says, I would say rather eloquently, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Did he have any idea of the controversies that he was about to create by the way that he structured that sentence? So what we can conclude at the least from Joshua chapter 5 is that circumcision and Passover and their practice of it were essential and necessary for them to gain entrance and possession of the promised land. And participation in them was essential to enter into the promises, and God commanded participation and observance prior to possessing it, and that they would do so in the presence of their enemies. 
Similarly, those who are estranged from the promises of God are called to put their faith in Jesus Christ and to be baptized. Certainly, no one can read their Bible and be a Christian and conclude that they are free to delay or to decline or to ignore God's command for baptism. Nor can anyone think that they're genuinely, can you live a Christian life apart from regular participation in the Lord's Supper. So are they necessary? God thinks so. But the next question that we need to clarify is, whose are they? Whose sacraments are they? Is that the commands of God are, Scripture reveals, a sign and a seal and guarantee of the promises of God. Now, American Christianity has done something particularly unique with the signs and seals. Is that American Christianity has convinced themselves that the sacraments are about them. That they are about their commitment, their decision that they, what they've decided to do, that the Lord's Supper is about our experience and our commitment. But they are not ours. They are the Lord's. And they are about the Lord, and they are not about us. Is that as the people of God to get, have gathered together, it was not the Israelites' idea to, sac- to practice circumcision. It was not their idea to celebrate Passover. It did not come from Joshua in reading the book of the law, though it should have. It was done at the Lord's command, as Joshua chapter 5 reminds us. It was the Lord who incapacitated his army to call his people to reworship, to remember that he is the one who gives deliverance and that victory belongs to the Lord. It was given at God's command. When God, and this is true throughout Scripture, when God established it with Abraham generations before, he says to Abraham, you are to practice circumcision, so shall my covenant be in your flesh. This isn't about your covenant, this is about my covenant, which is represented upon you. And each succeeding generation was to make it happen. But the reason why they're all dying in the wilderness is because the generation didn't practice circumcision. They all die there, as it says, because they had not been circumcised. The older generation was in unbelief, and the younger generation was not circumcised because the older generation was in disobedience. And so God reinstitutes his commands, and he recommands it. Circumcision and baptism are the Lord's work, the Lord's gift, the Lord's sign and seal of his covenant given to his people to be marked upon his people. Baptism isn't your sign. It isn't your family's sign. It's not even this church's sign. It is the Lord's sign, and it is the Lord's doing, and it is the Lord's doing given to the people of God, given to his church to be applied to those who are trusting and who are seeking the covenant promises that God has. The sacraments are the Lord's gift as a divine act given by his command. This is emphasized further in verse 9. When Joshua, the Lord says to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Today I have rolled away the reproach from you. How has the Lord rolled away the reproach of Egypt? The Lord rolled away the reproach by commanding Joshua to circumcise the nation. And it was because of the Lord's act that the town's name was changed from being a hill of foreskins to being called Gilgal, which means rolled, because it was there that God rolled away the reproach by God's command to be sealed 
with his covenant, with the sign of his promises. And the same can be said of Passover. It was commanded by God to Moses for future generations to practice. And the same can be said of baptism and the Lord's Supper. That they are commands of the Lord given to his church as signs and seal of his promises. Jesus says to his apostles, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the Lord's sign on the Lord's authority. Similarly, in the Lord's Supper, what Jesus says is he teaches us to say, this is my body which is given for you. This is my, the new covenant, the cup, the, new, the cup of the new covenant in my blood. The Lord gives them to us not because they are extraordinary in and of themselves, but because they are necessary. Whose are they? They are the Lord's, commanded by the Lord, commanded to his church to sustain, strengthen, and to testify of the promises of God in our own generation and to the next generation. This leads to the next important question that we need to ask. Are they necessary? God thinks so. Whose are they? They are the Lord's. How do we receive them? Is that we receive them by faith. The judgment against the first generation, the first generation that was baptized, circumcised, and had gone through the Passover, the judgment against them was that they had the sign, but they didn't have faith. And because they didn't have faith, the sign, the sacraments, did nothing for them. They did nothing, and in fact, they did nothing, and it didn't spare them from judgment, but brought judgment upon them. Similarly, baptism is only effective by the having faith in Christ. There is not a mystical element in the ceremony of baptism. There is no power in the water. It's not like getting a flu shot where the flu shot will do things to you whether you believe in it or not. Okay? Is that baptism represents the promises of God, the covenant of the Lord, and it is only effective for the person and it is only effective for the people of God by faith. It's a visible picture of the promises of God. And they are true, and they become effective, that you can have a relationship with God, your sins forgiven, new life, life eternal, be renewed in the image of Christ, be adopted as a child of God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and believing that. That's what baptism represents. That's what it seals. But it is only effectual, it is only works for those that receive it by faith. Similarly, the Lord's Supper, which we practice here regularly, every week, nearly every week in this service, every six weeks in the other, and we do it the same every time. You prepare to receive the Lord's Supper. We pray. I say the words of institution. There is a time of silence. There is a line. You participate in it, and we sing songs together. And Scripture tells us, that the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Consider those words. When you take the bread and the wine, in some way that we don't fully understand, you, by the act of consumption in faith, are participating. You are actually participating, this is what 1 Corinthians 10 says, you are actually participating in the blood 
and body of Christ and his sacrifice. And in this mysterious, invisible way, we commune with Jesus himself, not merely a remembrance, but a communing with the presence of the Lord. Let me make this a little bit more visible. (laughs) Suppose that we did not have to, one week, receive the Lord's Supper by faith, but we can receive it by sight. And suppose and imagine with me that the Lord Jesus himself materialized behind this table like he did with the disciples when they were breaking bread after the resurrection. And imagine that the Lord Jesus comes and he is standing behind this table here at Cornerstone. And you are gazing upon the glory of the resurrected Christ It would be completely silent in here. No one would move. You you would stare intently at the resurrected Savior. Your gaze would be fixed upon him. And there you would be looking at the one who, who you've prayed to so often, whom you have sung songs to, whose Holy Spirit has ministered to you and has strengthened you and has assured you of your standing as a child of God. And here he is standing behind this table. And if I made contact with him, I'd probably say, I think you got it this time. This one's on you. And then he's standing behind this table and he, and he motions you to come forward. As he motions you to come forward... You, your heart is pounding. Your, your hands, your palms of your hands are sweaty. You have this mixture of, of joy and awe and fear and love. And then as it becomes your turn, as he did with the disciples after Easter, he takes the bread and he says, this is my body given for you. And he hands it to you. And he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it in remembrance of me. And he he hands it to you. You'd want the moment to to last, last forever. But you know there's other people in line and you need to move forward. And for some of you here, hopefully not, but for some of you here who are not believers is that even seeing Jesus with your own eyes, you still would not believe it. Nor would you believe him. Some of you would fall down in repentance and submit to him as the Lord of your life. But imagine that you are standing here, and he has given you, and he says, this is my body, and this is my blood. Would you ever take the Lord's Supper the same way ever again? Would you ever forget the way that he handed you the bread and the wine and, and, the, and the weight of when he said to you, this is my body and this is my blood. Would you ever forget And you're looking at him and you're saying, wow, I don't understand how bread and wine, but, but Jesus said, this is my body and this is, this is my blood. And he's commanded me to do this in, in, remembrance of, in remembrance of him. Would you ever take of it, partake of it, and would you ever, would it ever be just ordinary to you? And though you might not be able to explain it, you would acknowledge that something important and precious happened there. You would acknowledge that you were the 
you would realize that, you, that some way you don't fully understand, it would be affirmed to you that you are the Lord's child. And how amazing God's grace is to be the Lord's. And your heart would overflow with a desire to serve him and a desire to love him. And then in the future, when you hear the, the words of the Apostle Paul say, when Paul says, I delivered to you that which I received from the Lord. That on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. Would you ever hear those words of Paul? I delivered to you that which I received from the Lord. How could you? Is that we partake of the sacraments by faith. The means by which we receive more of the Lord and we hold more firmly to the Lord and the Lord holds more firmly to us. There's a story of Thomas Aquinas, a medieval scholar, who that he was participating in the Lord's Supper one day in chapel in Naples. And he, had the, he said that he heard the Lord say to him, Thomas, you have written well of me. He was a brilliant scholar. What do you desire as the reward for your labors? And Thomas said, only yourself, Lord. Only yourself. The only thing that I desire is more of you. And that is how we participate in the sacraments. Is that we eagerly anticipate meeting the Lord. We eagerly participate in them, renewing our trust in his covenant and a sign of his faithfulness and of his promises. And we do so eagerly because God has shown us that they are indeed necessary that we do them at his command, and he has given them to us as a gift to be reminded not of our faith or our faithlessness, but to remind it of his faithfulness to his promises. And we receive them in faith, and we receive them by faith. And as we do so, we know that it is more important to participate in this sacrament than it is to be surrounded by an army of Canaanite enemies. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us, you have given your sacraments, the Lord's Supper, communion, to uh, that we would be reminded that they are yours and not ours, that the promises that we trust in are your promises, not our promises, that our hope and reliance And life and death is that I am not my own, but that I belong body and soul, both in life and death, to my precious Savior, Jesus Christ. And that because I belong body and soul to Jesus Christ, that I've been united to him by his death and resurrection through baptism. And I celebrate what you have done and participate with you in this mysterious way in the Lord's Supper. So, Father, we ask that you would indeed remind us of the goodness of your sacraments that we would be eager to participate in them so that we would remember and know you and experience you by your mercy and grace and as a testimony to our own generation and generations to come. We pray in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Stand. Worship him.